The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man who knew his life would end up in the gutter. He just didn't realize that everybody else would keep on bowling. It's Dale. <laughs> yeah, man. I thought I was going to be out of the gutter and falling off the house. <laughs> I was wondering if I can't get my balls off the roof, I keep rolling them in the gutter. <laughs> oh, good gosh. <laughs> What's going on, dude? What's up, man? Hey, same old, same old. Same old. Good day. Happy birthday to me. Uh, Dale's putting on a birthday today as we are recording. I'm telling you, I'm here for you guys. And everybody has blew up Facebook today wishing him happy fo- happy birthday. Happy, happy foot? <laughs> well, I got my, got my tang tongle there. <laughs> yeah, man, you guys are awesome. I really appreciate all the well wishes. I mean, it's just more than I deserve. He is well blessed. Really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you from all around the world. Yeah, it's great awesome. Day. Been awesome. A great day. Great day. Yep. Can share the birthday with you doing the podcast. Heck yeah, baby. Mm-hmm. All my all my family here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you got any good shout outs, bud? Anybody want to mention? I do got a few today. Let me uh, get my paperwork up here. First of all, we'd like to shout out to our friend Nicholas Smith who dropped a few bucks in the in the gas bucket with by PayPal donation. Oh, thank you, Nicholas. Yeah, we really appreciate that. Thank you very, very, very much. And we have a brand new Patreon member today. We would like to say thank you so much and shout out to Megan Stamp in the UK. Yep. And uh, Megan, if you would shoot us your address and we'll send you some really cool stuff. Yep. Anybody that joins Patreon, uh, you'll just put your address, mailing address in there when you join up. And that'll save some time, and we'll get you some cool stuff in the mail. That's right, that's right. And uh, one more shout-out uh, today. I was talking to a guy. So give out a shout to Ricky Oaks. He uh, said he lived here in Shelby for a while. He said then he moved to Lincoln, but he just recently got turned on to our podcast. He was listening to the Asia Degree episode, but he really thought that the Jeepers Creepers dude was pretty awesome. Yeah. So we really appreciate you uh, joining the family and jumping in there and listening to some stuff. That was awesome. So whoever turned you on, we appreciate you. Yeah, and turn everybody else on. That's right. But not like that, but just turn them on to our podcast. Oh, you can turn them on like that, too. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever you want to do. Whatever floats your boat. <laughs> That's right. That's it, man. And if anybody wants to go to Apple Podcasts, if you click the five-star please write something in the box we're getting a lot of people who just clicking that five star and we really appreciate that a lot but yeah we love the stars but we like to give a little thank you back yeah if you write something in the box it counts and we will be notified and you will get a big old shout out because we have no idea who clicks those five stars yeah if you don't write anything in the box it's just a, a star yeah and uh it doesn't matter what you write you know just, just as long as you write something yeah just tell us hey and tell us how great we are or something <laughs> sort of mediocre like that yeah that usually works yeah and we'll get you shouted out we will we will yep and get you a hoodie from the store page get you something cool that's right winter's here or something warm yeah yeah it is time for that mm-hmm. yeah especially during the little rainy nasty day yep it's just nasty here yes but it's still it's better than working ain't that the truth yep everything's better than working ain't that the truth <laughs> 
If nothing else, dude. All right, then. We're going to get started on this episode. You know what? Keeps us from getting yelled at. Let's roll. All right. But uh, this episode, dude, we are going to the southwest. All righty. Been mm-hmm. a while since we've been out. Yeah. We're going across the country to the southwestern part of the United States, and we're going to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Duke. Yep. And just a little bit of background on Las Cruces, New Mexico. It is about 45 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border. And it's just a short drive from El Paso, Texas. And today, Las Cruces has a population of around 100,000 people. Pretty big, pretty big. Yeah, making it the largest city in New Mexico. Well, actually, the second largest yeah. city in New Mexico. I was going to get you. Yep. And But 30 years ago, when the, our, our story takes place, the population was half of that. And wow. just had over 50,000 at the time. Hmm. Yep. And New Mexico State University is the state state's only land-grant university, and the city of Las Cruces has really grown around this university. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of uh, those residents have come because of that school. Yeah, but we just want to give a little bit of background on where we're going this week and, and go from there. But our story takes place, actually it starts on February the 10th of 1990, and this is on a Saturday, and this is when Stephanie Senak, she's 34 years old, and she arrives at work that morning. Yep. And she works at the Las Cruces Bowl. Yeah, it's a bowling alley. Yes. Yeah. And she is the manager of this bowling alley. But she also just happens to be the daughter of the bowling alley's owner, Ronald Senak. Yeah, it's like a big family business, I think. It is. Yeah. And on this particular day, she had with her her 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Repass, and a friend of hers, whose name was Amy Hauser. Yes. But it just so happened these girls were friends because her mother, Stephanie, was dating Amy's father. Right. Yeah, they went to school together, and I think when they realized that their parents were dating, they just really instantly became best friends. Yeah, they were like sisters almost in a way. I think Amy was uh, 13, so she's just a year older. This made it, yeah, this fit right in for them. Yeah. But like I said, they were very close friends, and they also helped out in the bowling alley's daycare. Mm-hmm. Since this was family-owned, they'd go there, I guess, maybe in the evenings or weekends and just help supervise some of the kids that were there and just give them things to do while, I guess, their parents bowled or done whatever they did. Yes. Yeah. Now, this was at 8 a.m. on this Saturday morning, and both Melissa and Amy were with Stephanie in Stephanie's manager's office. And Stephanie was getting ready to open for the day. I think the bowling alley opened at 9. Yes. And this was about 8. And she was going through some of the receipts and the money from the prior night because, you know, this Friday night, that's when the the leagues are bowling and there's probably a lot of cash going on. Yeah, it's a big adult league night. Yes. Lots of cash. Yeah. Amy and Melissa, they went over to the snack bar. Yes. And they were, I guess they were going to find them something to eat or some breakfast. And this is when Ida Holquin, she was the snack bar chef i guess you would call her yes yeah she was getting ready preparing for the day getting everything ready and they're prepping food yes getting everything ready for when they opened up and they were going to get them something to eat but she told them that she just didn't have time to fix them anything at the moment they'd come back after a while and she'd fix them something yeah she'd be glad to right now she just didn't have time she was really rushed and busy trying to get ready for opening yeah now while these two girls were at the snack bar trying to find them something to eat steve senak he is the brother of stephanie right the opening manager, and he's also the uncle of Melissa. 
and he wasn't working there on this particular morning, but he had just stopped by. Yeah, he had worked uh, late Friday night. Yeah. And it said been reported that he had left a book bag there. Yeah, he left his backpack in there, and he was going to some kind of class that morning, so he was just swinging in to pick it up. He had forgot it that night before. Yes. So he went in to get his book bag, and when he got to the bowling alley, he noticed that the front door was unlocked. Yeah, which is weird. Yeah. And he didn't like that at all. No. So he was supposed to leave it locked until opening hours. Yeah. So he went in and talked to Stephanie's sister for a few minutes and reminded her about the door. A little chastising. Yeah, told her to leave the door locked. He didn't want nobody walking in. Yeah. So this is when he grabbed his book bag and he left. Right. Yeah, he wasn't there long. He got his book bag and walked out the door. And it, I don't guess he locked it on the way back out. He just. No, he did not. Because I'm assuming that me and you talked about this. He yeah. probably had to have a key to lock it from the outside. Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm thinking, too. You had a key to either on either side of the door. Yeah. Because uh, you usually don't want to flip switch on a business door because then just somebody could just lock out your clientele and you didn't even know it. Yeah. Right. That's right. So he left. Now, at around 820 that morning, two men had stormed into the Las Cruces Bowldale. Mm-hmm. But neither of these guys were wearing masks or any kind of gloves or anything like that. Yeah, they weren't trying to hide who they were. No. But they stormed in through the bowling alley's unlocked front door, and one of the men was holding a twenty two caliber pistol, and he pointed the gun at Ida Holguin, mm-hmm. the cook there in the, the snack bar. Right. And then he demanded her to head towards the manager's office. But it wasn't until Ida, Melissa, and Amy were ordered into the manager's office. That's when Stephanie realized that uh, these intruders were inside the bowling alley. Now, the two gunmen demanded the four women to lie down on the floor. Right. Yep. Now, these two intruders, they promised the women that they were going to let them go if their demands were met. But they were rummaging through stuff like they were looking for something, what yeah. had been reported. It's kind of weird. Yeah, going through uh, filing cabinets, drawers. Just looking for something. And this one, they told Stephanie, the manager there, to open the safe. Right. Because she was the only one there that could open it. Yeah, the only one. Yep. And Stephanie opened the safe for the gunman and allowed them access to thousands of dollars. And it was estimated that there was somewhere between four and $5,000 in that safe. Right. But it's never been told exactly how much it was. Well, so they stole four or 5000 There was quite more in the safe, I think. Yeah. But they left some cash behind for some reason. Mm-hmm. Which is really weird to me. And, yeah, they didn't steal all of it. Which yeah. Is, yeah, this is weird. They think they took around four or five grand, but they left whatever was left there. And I've never heard how much was left, but they definitely left some there. But now, after they gathered up his cash, they seemed like they were ready to get a getaway. Yeah. But in the confusion of all this stuff going on, it seemed like their, their robbery or whatever they were planning on doing was interrupted yep and this is when steve Tehran, he was a 26 year old mechanic there at the bowling alley he worked on the i guess the mechanisms making sure all the lanes were working properly yes in the background that's right yeah just a little bit of background on him he was a pretty good guy loving young man he was known for his uh, rigorous moral code what they described him right always want to do the right thing yeah and he had recently attended a military school and was in the, the New Mexico National Guard. Right. And all of his loved ones stated that he planned to become a police officer in the near future. Yeah, actually, he had turned in his notice there. I think he had turned in his two-week notice just a few days earlier. 
at the bowling alley because mm-hmm. yeah. he was going to go be uh, in law law. He only had a few more days to work, I think. Yeah, yeah. But in addition to being married, Steve had two kids. His his six year old stepdaughter Paula Hogwin, which is no kin to Ida, the, yeah, even though he got the same last name, the snack bar lady, not related. And his two year old biological daughter Valerie. Mm-hmm. Now on this day, this Saturday, February the tenth of nineteen ninety, Steve had been unable to get some kind of daycare for his two daughters. His wife Audrey was. I think she was attending some kind of class at the nearby university. Mm-hmm. So Steve was in charge of watching the girls and and unable to get a sitter. He decided to take them to work with him. Well, why not? They got a daycare. So, yeah. You know, so kind of kind of works out. Yeah, let them watch them. I think he had done this before. Probably. Yeah. So no big deal. So just after eight twenty a.m., Steve entered the Las Cruces bowling alley with his six-year-old Paula and his two-year-old Valerie with him. And as they walked through the unlocked front doors, they were surprised to see nobody in the lobby or the kitchen. Yeah, it's like nobody was there. It's weird. Mm-hmm. So Steve, they they started walking toward the manager's office, where they stumbled upon this crime scene going on. Yeah, yeah, not good. Now, two armed men inside the manager's office. They started fighting with Steve. So they got into a scuffle. Yeah. And within moments, they had pretty much taken over Steve. They got the best of them. Well, two on one, and they both got guns. Yeah. And he and his daughters were cornered along with the other women there in the little manager's office. Yeah, I wonder how big this office was. That's a lot of people in a little office. Well, I've seen pictures of it. It didn't seem very big at all. Mm, Okay. Now, the two gunmen, they opened fire on the victims, Dale, shooting each of the seven hostages multiple times. And each of the victims were shot in the head, execution style. Even the kids, yeah. Yeah, including the teenage girls, Melissa and Amy, as well as Steve's two little girls, the six-year-old and the two-year-old. Yeah, they were just shooting the hell out of everybody. Yep. And the gunman left the room believing they had killed everyone in the room. Yeah, they had shot, I think, reported 25 times. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what kind of magazine or revolver or what kind of twenty-two they had, but that's a lot of shots for two guns. Maybe they had three guns. And they had also set fire to the office. Yeah, I think when they were going through all that stuff, they were throwing papers out on the desk, and I don't know what they were looking for, if they were just, if it was a paper or something hid in the file cabinet or what, but they were throwing stuff out, and when they left, they set a bunch of those papers on fire on top of that desk. Yeah, and it's believed they were hoping to maybe destroy some of the evidence that had yeah. left there. Well, they sure done that. Yeah. Well, you know, and like I said, also, if they were looking for some kind of papers or anything, if they set a bunch of stuff on fire, you'd never know what they took and what got burnt. And, you know, it just just messed up everything as far as uh, crime scene-wise. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And the gunmen, they had this opportunity to get their getaway, make their getaway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're pretty much thinking, we've killed everybody in here. I mean, they even reported that they shot the the smallest girl right in the forehead. Yeah. Which is pretty damn. That's that's evil, man. It is. I, I just don't understand. Now, at 8.29 a.m., the Las Cruces emergency dispatchers, they received a 911 call from inside the bowling alley. And on the other end of the line was 12-year-old Melissa Repass, Stephanie's daughter. She had survived the shooting. Yes. And I'm going to tell you, I have listened to this 911 call. Too many times. Many damn times. It gets me every time. Oh, it gives me cold chills. I cannot imagine what this little girl was enduring, what she was having to look at 
in there in that office. Mm. But we've got that 911 call here, Dale. Yeah, let's play that. It's now. about four, a little over four minutes long. Yeah, it's pretty long, but it's we need to play it. Yep. All right, here we go. All right. Go ahead. I hear the officers telling you to get out. Get I out. can't. There's nobody else. 
that the police officer wants yeah. to get out, yeah. then get out. Okay. Okay? All right, Dale. Yeah, I can't I can't say enough about Melissa Repass. Man. I'm telling you. My this God. little girl, the the gumption she had <clears> and the <throat> holding herself together to be able to tell emergency officials what was happening and what was going on in the after being shot five times and still being that that calm and having her wits about her to mm-hmm. be able to even find the damn phone to call, much less to be able to give that kind of information. And it sounds like she's trying to tell him about the money, but she gets cut off on that part. Yeah, he cuts her off a couple of times, but I mean, uh, and sometimes I kind of get pissed off at this dude, but then again, I guess he's really just trying to keep her calm by making it seem like it's not as bad as it is. Yeah. You know, but it's still hard sometimes, but man, when she's, when she said it hurts, that just kills my heart, man. Cause I got mm-hmm. a little girl. Well, they ain't little no more, but I have girls and that just kills me. Yeah. And then her talking about the fire. Yeah. And then it's going to burn up. Burn up, yeah. yeah. And then worrying about her mom. And, and and to think you've been shot five times and no, you're just worried about everybody else. And she's wanting to go get a fire extinguisher. Yeah. Can I go get it? Can I go get it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but her quick thinking, man, I mean, it, it ended up saving her life. It did. Yeah. But she is on the phone with 911 trying to get help out there. And they, the I can't say enough about the the emergency service there man they were there quick within four minutes yeah. yeah it was fast that's impressive and they came in and got melissa yep. now because the the fire that had been started first responders radioed in for immediate backup and they began hauling in all seven of the bodies inside the manager's office into the lobby out there in the bowling alley and once out there they were able to start treating all the victims dale yeah who were for the most part just bleeding and unconscious now 12 year old melissa repass this is when it made a 911 call her 34 year old mother stephanie senak and 33 year old ida holkman were all stabilized and rushed to memorial general hospital in las cruces Mm -hmm. valerie teron she was steve's two-year-old daughter went along with him but would end up passing away on the way to the hospital yeah yeah i guess i'm maybe she was showing some signs of life there at the bowling alley, I don't know. Yeah, didn't hurt him to try. Yep. And the other three victims, 26-year-old Stephen Tehran and his 6-year-old daughter, Paula Holkwin, and 13-year-old Amy Hauser, were all pronounced dead at the scene. But the paramedics and EMTs had responded quickly, like we said, but they weren't able to save them. It was just so brutal, man. Yeah, I figured, especially Steve was probably pretty instant. They probably made damn sure after him fighting back. Yeah. Yeah. He probably got it pretty bad. But the firefighters were able to put out the fire inside the manager's office, but investigators would later worry about the cost of fire, you know, later destroying the evidence like we talked about. Right. But, yeah. it, you know, when you when you got a pick between saving somebody's life and a little bit of evidence. You just got to go with the life, man. Yeah, I mean, every time. Yeah, exactly. And for the meantime, police officials began coordinating with the U.S. Border Patrol. It's really impressive how fast, you know, and how responsible these these folks were here. Yeah. And they were spreading the word throughout the area, establishing road roadblocks and keeping an eye out for local suspects. Mm-hmm. And they put up, I think, 10, 10 different roadblocks around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And another thing about Liz, uh, Melissa, you know, we were talking about, you know, her being so calm. That she had only learned how to do this just a, 
like a week or so before yeah. in school. I had to call 911 and what to do if you ever got in trouble. Yeah. So it was, it's really amazing. Well, she paid attention. Yes. Yeah. Now, in her 911 call, Melissa had identified the perpetrators. Yes, as black men. Yeah. But it would change with the police believing that the suspects were Hispanic men with dark complexions. Yeah. Who were probably planning to leave the area or even the country. Well, hell, they ain't with 40 miles from them. You know they're going. Yeah. I mean, they they could be in the border, they across, be the border across the border, yeah, less than an hour. Yeah, easy. Yep. Now the events of February the tenth of nineteen ninety would continue to shock this area, man, and even the country for many months and years oh, yeah. after this happened. And it was actually dubbed the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. Yeah. By the press just a few days after. Well, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Amy's parents. And other loved ones were now deprived of watching 13-year-old grow up, man. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, because she was described as a fun-loving and heartwarming little girl. Mm. Had an infectious singing voice, too. Mm -hmm. Now, Audrey Terrain, this was the widow of Steve and the mother to six-year-old Paula and two-year-old Valerie. She lost everybody. Her whole family in one swoop, man. Yeah. Can you imagine? I cannot imagine, man. Mm. Yep. And the other victims, Stephanie Senak, Ida Holguin, and Melissa Repass, would also be facing a number of issues in the days, weeks, and months to come. And Yeah. And yeah, I think Melissa got out of the hospital fairly quick. Well, I mean, when I say fairly quick, I'm like nine or ten days. Yeah. But I think what Ida was in there for like a month or something like that. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure Stephanie's there a long time because they had a lot of... I think shrapnel in her head and some brain damage and some stuff going on. So it wasn't like they were just went in there and put a band-aid on and went home. Yeah, Ida. It was tough. Ida had to learn to do everything over again. Right. Yeah, she had to learn to walk and actually had to learn to eat again and do speak and everything. Had to relearn everything. Crazy. Yeah. But this would affect them for the rest of their life, man. Oh, yeah. But the funeral and memorial services were arranged for the deceased, but this didn't stop Las Cruces Police Department from getting into action, Dale. Oh, no. Now, the fire inside the manager's office at the bowling alley had ended up destroying all the valuable evidence, like we mentioned. Yeah. Almost all the interactions between the gunman and the victim's survivors had been destroyed, man. Well, I mean, I don't really know what all they could have found anyway, truthfully. Yeah. I mean, I know they didn't have no gloves and, and stuff, but it's a bowling alley where, I mean, there's thousands of people in there touching everything every day. Every day. I mean, I know it's in the office as well, but what did they touch besides, well, I guess the file cabinet, but still a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess they, and I think they did get a few fingerprints, actually, but yeah. I don't think everyone got anywhere with it. Yeah. And this is kind of before DNA was really a thing. There was a detective, Mark Myers, who took over the investigation years later, and he stated that it was a very complicated crime scene. They had lit the office on fire. There's a clear indication they were thinking about destroying evidence that they had left behind. They weren't going to leave any witnesses, no matter how young. I have no doubt when they left, they thought everyone was dead. Oh, yeah. That's what he said. So it seems clear that the investigation, you know, kicking off in 1990, this was well before DNA had mm-hmm. really got into the swing of things. Right. I mean, I'm sure they had it, but it wasn't like yeah. a major tool like today. And they started canvassing people around the area looking for anyone that might have seen or heard anything. Right. 
and they were able to find a couple of witnesses at least one who claimed they had heard the shots happening from a nearby businesses and well, there was 25 of them certainly somebody heard something yeah and the other witness who also worked nearby claimed to have seen two men running away from the scene around the time that melissa repass was making her 911 call hmm. Now, Steve Senak, this is the guy we mentioned. This was Stephanie's brother, the one that came to get his backpack that morning. Right. Claims that he had seen two Hispanic men walking in the region of the Bowley Alley that morning. Yeah. Perhaps even headed to the entrance. And he claims that one of the men was carrying a briefcase, which he handed to the other as they walked. Right. Now, the dudes came in, they had a briefcase. Yes, they did. Right. Now, Steve... Didn't piece together all this until he learned about the crime, but stated that the two men had very distinct features. One was older and one was younger, and Steve's descriptions would end up forming the basis of these police sketches that they had. Yeah, and they're pretty good. Yeah. Now, suspect number one was a young Hispanic male between 28 and 34 years old who stood around 5 foot 10, weighed between 160 and 170 pounds had wavy brown hair, brown eyes, and a mustache with no detectable accent. Right. That's what they said. And suspect number two was an older Hispanic male who seemed to be between 48 and 54 years old who stood around 5 foot 8 and weighed around 140 pounds. He had thinning salt and pepper hair with brown eyes who spoke English but with a slight Spanish accent. Yeah, and depending on where you read or what you hear, it's a slight to a heavy <laughs> accent. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, he could still speak English, but he had an accent. Yep. Now, based on additional witness sightings, it's believed these two men had fled the scene in a green four-wheel drive vehicle or even a, a van-type vehicle. Hmm. Which is a big difference to me. Yeah. Now, in the hours after reporting of this massacre at the bowling alley, Steve Senak he gave his description of these two men to the police. And a short time later, he was called to the scene of a police roadblock deal. Right. Now, this is where they had pulled over a vehicle that had four Hispanic guys in it. With a lot of cash. Yeah, a lot of cash. And they got Steve out there to see if he could identify any of these men that would perhaps the ones he saw outside the bowling alley. Correct. Yeah. But Steve could not identify any of the men as the ones he had seen earlier. Nope. They let them go. Yeah, they just let them go. Which, you know, it is what What are you going to do, yeah? Yeah. If he says that's not them, it's not them. As far as he's concerned. Yep. And it wasn't, it wasn't long after that the descriptions of these two men were verified by survivor Ida Holquin, who had survived multiple gunshots of the massacre and was able to add a lot more descriptions of the gunman. Yes. Because she's seen them, definitely. Yeah. And Ida believed that these two men had been at the bowling alley at some time prior to this shooting in the days, weeks, and months before. Yeah, you think like they're in there casing the joint out or something. Mm-hmm. Just maybe just sitting around. Seeing, see, seeing how stuff worked. See who's coming and going, who worked where, and what people did. Where, the, where you know, regular staff hours, where the office is, the layout, schedule, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. But now Ida also believed that the gunman had not gone to the bowling alley that day to rob the place, but she would state that the two men, her quote was, were looking for something else before they went to the safe. Yeah, like they was trying to find something before they was like, oh, well, shit, this is his money. Yeah. Hmm. And that's, uh, that's a, a lot of people think that. Yeah. 
Because if it was coming just to rob the place, why are you leaving the damn money in the, you know, why, yeah. why not take it all? If you're going to rob, you're going to take every bit of money that's in that safe. Yeah, you're going to take that and whatever's in people's pockets. Yeah. Rings. Rings and wallets and that kind of sort. Yeah. yeah, empty pockets, people. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it become theorized by some that violence might not have been the gunman's motive. They had left behind an undisclosed amount of cash, like we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So basically they're saying they thought maybe they just coming in there to do some stuff instead of just robbing. Yeah, looking for something. Yeah, looking for something and didn't give a damn what they had to do to get it, apparently. Nonetheless, the case began to pivot away from being focused entirely on a motive robbery. And that was when the investigators began to narrow in on specific rumors. Hmm. Crucius Bowl was somehow connected to organized crime, either directly or indirectly. Mm-hmm. Now, shortly after this shooting took place, rumors started swirling that the owner, Ronald Senak, had some kind of shady business going on. Well, you know, at the time of the shooting, he just happened to be out of town. Yeah. On a golf trip to Arizona. Arizona. Yeah. On a golf trip. Just happened to be. Out of town, yeah. So, hmm. I don't know. Everything looks a little iffy on him to me. So, like, uh, like maybe somebody coming in here to give him a little message about something. Yeah. Something that's just kind of, something's not adding up here. But they put uh, Ronald Senek under a microscope, man. And this uh, Mark Myers, that detective we mentioned before, he right. was even quoted as saying that we investigated all the angles at the time and thousands and thousands of man hours went in trying to prove those theories. But we couldn't prove anything. We put Ronald Senek under a microscope and couldn't find anything. Hmm. He said, to date, all we know for sure, it was a robbery homicide. Yeah, I think there were rumors like he was working with some cartel or something, so they even checked all that stuff yep. to say they couldn't find any links. Now, in the months after this case, the investigators began to focus on R.J. Senak. He was the younger son of the bowling alley's owner, Ronald. Right. And he, he tended to bar there at the bowling alley. Yep. And several tips came in and been received by police claiming that R.J. was involved in some kind of drug activity. Yeah, they even thought maybe he was dealing drugs at, you know, from behind the bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, when they checked into him, they did find out that he had like a cocaine addiction, but nothing, nothing other than that, that they could actually ever prove that he was dealing or anything else. Yeah. But they couldn't ever find nothing else that linked him to the case. And actually, he was cleared of any wrongdoing and died of a drug overdose in May of 97 at the age of only 36. Wow. Yeah. Now, there was another lead that came in from a local woman. Her name was Irma Tijerina. I think I'm probably messing that name up. Close enough for me. Yep. And this was shortly after the shooting. And she made contact with the police and claimed to have encountered two men that matched the description of the shooters. Yeah, this is the lady said she was keeping them in her house. Yeah. Yeah. And according to her, she claimed that two men stayed with her yeah. at around the time of the massacre. Even saying that at the time of there, they could hear all the helicopters coming across. You know? Yeah. Because they said they had, what, like two or three helicopters, including the uh, Border Patrol's Blackhawk. Yeah, helicopter flying overhead trying to find these people. I mean, they'd done a lot trying to to chase them down that first day, you know, having all those roadblocks and the copters out looking to see. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some people said they'd seen them running on foot, and then, like you said, that other thing about the four-wheel drive or a van, so I don't know which one was which, but yep, they were trying. And she would even undergo a polygraph test, which at the time was pretty valuable to investigators. Yeah. At this point, that, they kind of thought that was a big deal. Yeah. 
after taking this polygraph and providing p- police with details of the two men that stayed with her, Irma recanted her claims of all this. Yeah. And police made note of her frequent drug use and later stopped talking about the crime. Yeah, she's like, mm, never mind. And just like R.J. Senak, Irma Tirzarina would pass away at an early age due to drugs. Accidental overdose. And she died in May of 2001. She even claimed that the uh, the guys in the house were just sort of joking around saying, we're right under their nose and they don't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, this drug deal, I think, or, you know, maybe she was uh, somebody who knew them. They came in. She kept hid for a while. And then when she started wanting to talk a little bit, somebody come by to fix that. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like to me. But in the several months to come, they weren't any closer to solving this case. No. Mm-mm. Nothing. And they were thinking that perhaps it was just a robbery gone wrong or a heinous crime committed by two men with no remorse. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. But perhaps there was some explanation to them leaving some of the money behind. Yeah, like what? Though? Yeah. That uh, doesn't make sense. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. And if I don't know, if it's just coming in to rob a place, you wouldn't walk in with no mask, no gloves. You would come in to get the money and get the hell out. Yes. I mean. In and out quick. There's, I mean, I don't know. I guess in my mind now, I don't know. These people might have been cartel dudes that didn't give a shit, you know. But in my mind, most people who are coming, who are so-called burglars or robbers or whatever, mm-hmm. they're not going to come in there and kill a bunch of kids. They're in there to get money and get out. Yeah. They're not coming in there for you know trying to execute seven people and then then leaving money in the damn safe Mm -hmm. it just doesn't make sense i agree now because of the brutality of the crime it seemed like the shooting of all the seven hostages might have been meant to send a message yeah that's more and maybe to a former employee or acquaintance of the bowling alley staff you know and maybe involved in some kind of way yeah, you know, and then some people even thought maybe that, that Steve guy was kind of was setting them up, you know, or whatever. But I just don't see how you can just be setting up your sister and, and her kids you mm-hmm. know, to be killed. I just don't buy that either. It just seems kind of personal to me to set the the desk on fire, per, you know, papers on top of the desk, mm-hmm. and be rummaging through file cabinets looking for something. Yeah, it just this Ronald Senak, the bowling alley owner. He seems very sketchy to me. A lot man. of shadiness going on there. Yeah. We just happen to be out of town. Yeah, you know, and then you think about Steve. Like, well, well, did he he know something? Was what they were looking for? Was it in in his backpack that he came to get? Could have been. You know, uh, we just had just happened to have it walk right out <laughs> before they got there. Mm-hmm. And you know, then that could be just a far fetched theory too. But like I said, because I just don't see somebody setting up their family to be executed. Well, let's talk about the Steve leaving the bowling alley. You know, that come and got his backpack. Right. You'd said something about him, that maybe the robbers thought that he was working that day and was just leaving, and he wasn't going to be in there. Right. So if they have been casing out the joint for a while, they would know that, like on Saturday morning. Now, if this is the usual case, you know that that uh, usually have there's usually the manager lady and her kids, and then a cook, and whether it's Ida or the one who, you, I don't know if we even said that. that did we say that, that mm-hmm. she was there? Yeah, or like Idaho, or you know, or the other lady, whoever the other cook was, it wasn't there that day, and then so they would know they would be like two grown women, some kids, and then one man. Yeah. So maybe they were already in the parking lot waiting to get close to make sure all the employees got there, so they wouldn't be caught from behind. And then once you know the they saw the 
the woman and the kids go in and then the other cook goes in and then they see a man go in like well all the employees are here that's coming in here so they see him walking the door so they're like well let's go so they get out of the car start walking and then next thing you know he's coming back out so like oh wait a minute you know so that kind of probably throw him off but they also see that he walks out and the door's not locked so they think well maybe he's gone it's even gonna be easier so then they go in yeah and then a little bit later is when the guy that's actually working comes in but he's bringing his two kids with him and then kind of come up by surprise at the back and that's why they were already in the office doing what they were doing instead of watching the door to see if anybody else come in yeah so that i think that's a plausible theory could very well be didn't help them out much either way and for nobody but i still think that might have you know might have been why they just went on in to start doing what they were doing yeah but now, for Stephanie, the office manager there, she remained frightened after all this, man. Oh, my God. Even choosing to barely leave the house. Even when she did, she would show signs of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, she's uh, been shot in the head multiple times. Yeah. Man. I mean, come on. Uh, her loved ones uh, once recall her, you know, as a carefree, loving, you know, had an attitude of just, you know, loving life. And then after that, she just changed. You imagine, you mean you're out somewhere and you hear a damn firework go off or something? Yeah. That? You would just be frozen in pain. I, I would. No, oh, yeah. Just freak out, hit the ground. But Stephanie would pass away in 1999 due to complications from her shooting-related injuries. Right. There's and, no really no details on that. Just no. To, it, just, it was shooting-related. Yeah, and she was survived by her family, including her daughter, Melissa, the one that made the... Who was the hero of the story. Yeah, made the 911 call. Yeah. And Melissa and Ida Hoquin remained the sole survivors of this shooting. It's been 32 years. Yeah. And they don't have any... Nothing. Nothing now. Nothing. And this bowling alley has changed hands several times. Ronald was, unfortunately, after the shooting, he, a week after this happened, Dale... I think it was six days. Yeah. He opened the bowling alley back up. Yeah. I guess they, they cleared it for him to open it back up. And a lot of people was like, what in the hell are you doing? Yeah. And he was basically like, well, life's going on. we got to get moving. Got to keep going. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like to me he's needing some damn money. Sounds like it. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, have they even got your, your daughter's blood cleaned up off the carpet? I mean, <laughs> kind of muddy. That's crazy, man. Yeah. And then, hell, what, less than a year later, he would close it due to bankruptcy because he owed somebody over $2 million. He was in debt or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just crazy. He had to shut it down. So... So that tells me he was in debt to somebody for a lot of damn money. Yeah. Yeah, he had some stuff going on behind the scenes, man. Mm. And that's what gets me. They couldn't, they didn't look into his background, his his financial information. Yeah, because, you know, anything, sometimes when stuff like this happens, they check all that stuff. Yeah. All this. Did they not look into that? I'm sure they did, but I don't know, you know, if he's working with the cartel, they probably don't have no contract written up. He ain't going to find no paperwork on that. I ain't saying he was, but Can you, I mean it's just it's just a lot of like you said. It seems like somebody was sending somebody a damn message. You yeah, need to pay your damn bills. Yeah, exactly. Now in 2010, there was a documentary that was released about all this, titled "A Nightmare in Las Cruces," mm-hmm. and it was directed by Charlie Men, who had learned about the case back in 1990. He had been a college student living on the other side of the country who was watching all this on unsolved mysteries mm-hmm. and he learned about this and he continued to stick with it for years after the fact and he remained he in, just couldn't shake it yeah yeah it stuck with him yeah i saw an interview with him man and 
he was talking about and you know some of the these victims they didn't want to do it at first and it was like well they thought maybe he was just going to exploit them about you know what was going on and then when they really met with him and found out he was trying to help them and tell their story of how this has really you know bothered them it's not like hey we got shot now or we lived and we're all good it was just talking about you know like you were saying about the ptsd and all that and mm-hmm. all this you know re- relearning everything and telling their story about how bad it was and in them also living with uh survivor's guilt about you know why me why do we get to live and they didn't get to live and it's just a pretty bad and he was talking he's like i've been with these families just about six weeks making this movie and he he was pretty emotional about it he said i can't imagine what they've been doing you know for the last 20 years you know at this yeah. point it was just 20 years and so it was just it's it really impacted him a lot mm-hmm. and uh i still want to see the movie yeah it's available on youtube i think it's 399 on, on yeah. youtube yeah now shortly after the 20th anniversary of this crime a documentary was released and it seemed to spark a, a new wave of interest in this mm-hmm. this uh, massacre and figures related to the case began to speak openly for the first time including audrey terrain this is the wife of steve and you know had the two little girls two girls yeah yeah and but like i said she had to bury her entire family in the wake of all this and right. remained affected by the events there's a lot of quotes from her yeah and she was even quoted as saying, you wait and wait and wait. The first few years, maybe the first 12 years, there was always a lot of anxiety. I was always very antsy and wanting to know more. But after that, I had to put it aside and deal with my anxiety. I've gotten to a point where we just don't get any answers. And Audrey wanted the rest of the world to remember how violent this incident was. It was bad. Yeah. She said, my two-year-old daughter was shot in the forehead but she wasn't killed immediately her spinal cord was severed if she had lived she would have been a quadriplegic yeah she's the one who passed away on the way to the hospital yeah maybe people in the southwest didn't know just how horrific it was how my daughters were mistreated it's been 20 years and people will stop me and tell me and they're praying for me praying that there will be closure man. yeah i can't imagine what this woman went through man oh i'm telling you Burying the whole family. The whole family. But like I said, this uh, bowling alley, once known as the Las Crucius Bowl, this building continues to stand in the same spot as it did. Mm-hmm. And it's changed ownerships more than once. Yeah, it's been two or three different bowling alleys. But I think after this, it's just hard to come back from something like this. Yeah, after that, it was Sun Lanes. And then after that, it was Ten Pin Alley. Mm-hmm. You can look it up on uh, Google Street View and the sign is still up saying 10 pin alley over the door right but it's just a vacant building now Hmm. this town of las crucis before this it was pretty crime free oh yeah i think the year before they had two murders the whole year so they doubled that in one day yeah and i think the same day there was another shooting somewhere else that same day totally unrelated to this but yeah um it's, it's just crazy yeah this is a horrific story and that little melissa repass that little girl man she deserves some kind of award for this and i mean i don't know i don't know what they did for her yeah. i hope they did plenty yeah she's sure she deserved it yeah and there is a twenty five thousand dollar award it's still available yeah if you know anything about this crime you know, so if you guys know anything or if you know or if you think you might know anything, call Crime Stoppers one eight hundred two 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 eight four seven seven. Or you can also text your information to crimes at 
2-4-6-3-7. Yep. Mm-hmm. Your information will re- remain anonymous. That's right. Yep. Or you can just contact the Las Cruces Police Department directly. Yep. 575-528-4222. But the men responsible for this crime continue to elude investigators. But Audrey Terrain, the widow and mother of the three victims. She envisioned them living in fear. Yeah. In misery. But yeah. she's probably hoping they do anyway. Yeah, but I think these guys left the country. I do, too. Yeah. And I believe it's uh, Ronald Senak. He, I mean, uh, there's just some shady dealings going on. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, I don't know. We're kind of puzzled about really what's going on. If this, if Ronald had some kind of deal, what would it have been, you know? Yeah. And, you know, was they, did the guy have a bunch of cocaine in the place and that's what they were looking for? Did the other guy, did the... The younger guy take it and go with it. Did he? Did the the kid that had the cocaine addiction? Did he owe him a lot of money? And they're trying to get daddy to pay, and daddy ain't paying, so they come in to go. Well, you're gonna pay this way. Yeah, could be that something. That's a, you know, there's a lot of different angles this could be, mm-hmm. and the guy could be innocent. But I just he just seems a little shady for me. It just seems really really sketchy that he had to shut down. You know, less than a year later, right? Owing two million dollars. Yeah, to somebody. Because of a bowling alley. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's just crazy, but it's a sad, sad story with, with no ending. Yeah. All right, Dale. That is the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. That is it, brother. Yeah. It's rough. But I feel for them families and Melissa Repass, man. She was, she was a trooper. Yes. Yep. All right, dude. We're going to get out of here. Let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you this is the crack house chronicles Chronicles.